Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett, and today I'm joined by Professor Debbie Haskey-Levanthal. She is a successful professor in business at Macquarie University with numerous books and articles, but her journey here was unusual. Growing up in a cult and leaving and escaping an arranged marriage at 18 and finding salvation in higher education and volunteering here in Australia. She's dedicated her life to purpose and impact, and she is the author of Make It Meaningful. And in that book, she shares not only her powerful story and ideas on what it means to create and and have impact in your life, but she offers seven ways to help us implement them in our own lives. And she has very kindly joined us today to share with us her secrets of success and talk about her book. So welcome, Debbie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Such a pleasure to see you again. Congratulations on an amazing book. Thank you. <laughs> it's it's a, you know, it's not an easy book to write um, and having it published feels a little bit like giving your child away for adoption. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's it was not easy to write it all down and then let it all go, but it was also very liberating. So do you want to tell the audience that haven't read it yet a little bit about what your book is about, but also how you came to actually write your book? Absolutely. So it's an interesting book because it's half a memoir sharing my story of growing up in a cult-like organization, the Kabbalah Center, and having escaped that the deep meaning surge that my mother went, which led her to the Kabbalah Center. I'll talk about that in a second. And my deep meaning surge when I left the Kabbalah Center. Um, so half the book is a memoir and half the book is a guide, a self-development book about how to find meaning in life and work, um, how to cultivate a sense of purpose, impact, service, and meaningfulness. So, you know, the interesting thing that you said to me offline before we started is the number of people reaching out to you. And the audience may not be aware that people are struggling to find meaning if they do lose their religion, for example. Absolutely. Look, religion gives you so much meaning. It really structures your day. Um, I can only speak as someone who grew up in a very religious Jewish community and in ultra-Orthodox Jewish schools, which meant that every second of my life was filled with rituals and prayers. From the second I woke, I woke up in the morning, there was a prayer for thanking God for giving me my soul back. Then I had to get out of bed and wash my hands with a goblet three times on each hand, say a prayer, go to the bathroom, come out of the bathroom, say a prayer. Um, and then, of course, there was a 20-minute prayer in the morning and, and so on. And then the whole day, you know, going to high school was about studying the Jewish um, law, the Jewish traditions, the, the Bible. And there was just not a minute to think for yourself. And when you leave all of that behind, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It felt very empty. The other thing is that growing up in, in the Kabbalah Center and growing up with these very Jewish ultra-Orthodox schools, 
meant that for years I was brainwashed to believe that I will not have a life outside these circles. And if I do, it's going to be an empty life. We used to call the secular Jews empty wagons because they they were empty. They were they carried nothing. They had a meaningless life. And so coming out of that, I was so scared that my life is going to be meaningless that it was it was really difficult emotionally, um, mentally. I thought, what am I going to fill my life with? And that was very, very scary. And and uh, and for people that have heard of you on the podcast before and other stories, the thing about that's so interesting about your story is that all of this shaped your brain from a very young age. So that adds to the complexity, doesn't it? So the younger you go in, the more easy it is to shape your understanding that 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 is your life, because you've never seen something else, really. Indeed. And look, many people grow up in these cults or in these religious circles. We joined when I was just five, after my brother died of cancer when I was three. And my mother was trying to impart some kind of meaning to this meaningless tragedy. And so when she stumbled upon the Kabbalah Center, she saw an ad in the newspaper about having a free Kabbalah lesson. And she thought, okay, I'll go. And then she she really found some solace in that. The Rabbi Berg, who led the center, we used to call him the Rav, he sat down with her and he explained that my brother died so so that she and our family can join Kabbalah and can um, spread the light. Whether or not, you know, this was just a manipulation to get her to work, but it helped. I don't remember much about my brother, but I remember much about growing up with a grieving uh, mother. And that was that was terrifying when you're just three and all your early memories are of your mother sitting down on the floor crying. And I think this is the hard part for, too, <laughs> as you're finding out the people that you're meeting with your book is there's so many people in this situation where they're attracted to the light, so to speak, to help get over their pain. And uh, many people bring in people like that a bit traumatized that's the sad thing because so many of us are vulnerable and broken. And the fact that organizations like the Kabbalah Center, but many others kind of abuse people's vulnerability uh, and take advantage of that in order to grow their power and financial gain. Uh, it's just heartbreaking. Uh, and people may not know, but um, you can maybe summarize what happened with that the people that you originally joined, you were one of the early people into the centre, so you actually watched it move from an organic in trying to help the community into something massive and powerful. Look, I don't think there will be the first people who were changed by power and money, but over the 15 years that we were with the Kabbalah Centre, we saw it growing from a small, organic or um, family-like organisation where there was maybe 100 devotees to one where there were thousands and, and more. Um, by the time I left, there were a lot of rich donors 
there were still not the big celebrities like Madonna and Demi Moore and, and many others who joined later and actually established the reputation of the Kabbalah Center. But it was just fascinating to think about how the organization has changed in the 15 years that we were there. I do believe that it started out as a spiritual center. The idea was a good one, even a feminist one, because Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism that for centuries was believed to only be accessible for men only over the age of 40 who studied every other aspect of Judaism. So it was quite exclusive. And what Rabbi Berg and his wife Karen aimed to do was to make it accessible for everyone, including women. Uh, and that was unheard of, which is why they were boycotted by the ultra-Orthodox from day one. In fact, they really hated us, um, so much so that sometimes we would go into physical fights with them. So it was... It has started out as the idea of let's make something that's good, that's spiritual, um, available to everyone because everyone can benefit from it to, hey, <laughs> there is a lot of money in that. And we could actually sell, uh, first they were only selling books, but by, uh, after I left, they started selling anything from filtered water that they were selling as holy water that if you had cancer, you just had to um, rub the uh, water on your belly and, and cure the cancer and and the red string and a lot of um, uh, how should I put it nicely <laughs> um, a lot of mishmash that was partially um, new age partially Kabbalah partially um, some ways of making more money and like and that conferences is getting wrong yeah. <laughs> With like when you go to conferences, you leave with water bottles and things like that. Yeah, but they don't tell you to rub it over your belly to cure cancer. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do you want you talk a lot about how you can use your story to impact meaning in our lives? So, for people listening that may be struggling in this space, um, whether they've left a religion, whether they've lost a child. You know, there's so many things that happen across life that can then lead us to feeling like we don't have any meaning or that we can't find it. Mm. Do you want to talk about how you can, well, you've, how you're using your story, but how other people might access the capability of doing the same thing? We all have a story. Um, so if you lived long enough, and by long enough, I mean probably over the age of 15, <laughs> then you have a story um, to share. And we are so captured in the present moment, in our anxiety, in our difficulty, that sometimes we forget that our story has a past and it also has a future. And the idea is that you can find meaning in your life by starting to create your story, understanding what is your narrative and how you can connect your past, including all past trauma and difficulties, with who you are today and who you want to become in the future. And as it may sound a little bit like, okay, that's just common sense, it actually takes time and effort. And I even encourage people to sit down and write down their stories to understand how my past has affected my present self and how I can utilize my story to make sense to it today and to create my future. 
And I saw people take their past traumas and really turn it into a beautiful story. There is this woman that I've met in one of the conferences on kindness. Her name was Yemi Penn, and she she did a documentary film called Did I Choose My Trauma? And she was sexually abused when she was just seven or eight. And then she decided to really use that trauma to understand who she is today, but also talk about um, the forbidding subject of sexual abuse and to take out the shame out of it and to see how you can actually retrospectively sort of choose to use your trauma. We don't choose our trauma. She didn't choose to be sexually abused, but that you can use that in a sense of choice that now I'm using my trauma to help others and to cultivate meaning to my life today. So to understand where I come from and how I can use that is a really powerful way to impart meaning in my life. I love that. I love that um, way of describing it because this is exactly why we're so aligned because from a brain neuroscience development perspective, what you're doing is and you're transforming pain into to courage and hope that means that one, it doesn't dismiss what you went through because it mostly they're always not anyone's fault, especially little children and previous generations of pain. But at the same time, you want to live a happy, thriving life that isn't that isn't defined just by all of those memories because the brain holds on to bad memories over good memories always. So what you're telling people to do, which I think is so wonderful way of saying it is you're actually helping people work out a strategy to drive in more positivity into the forward direction of their life at the same time as using the past as a thread, not as something like an anchor. Anchor that pulls you down. Absolutely. So it's about how do we make sense of what happened to us, maybe even retelling or reshaping our narrative but also to utilize it, to make it into a source of, um, yeah, absolutely. It's about not having an anchor that pulls you down, but instead pulling up the anchor and saying, okay, that anchor can give me solace when I'm ready to stop the sheep, but where do I take that sheep and how do I move it forward? And it's such an important thing to do because it really does help you to heal. And um, I found the writing of the book was very, very difficult. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was accompanied by nightmares and flashbacks. The childhood of, you know, growing up in the Kabbalah Center came to life and it was very difficult. But when I finished writing the book, it was so liberating. It was as if, okay, that was my story. I now give it to the world and I used it as a force for good. Doing that kind of changed its shape. It put it in a box and it helped me say, okay, it's actually a beautiful box and I can use it and I can utilize it. And if I may, I just want to read to you at the cover of the book, the endorsement by Manal al-Sharif. She's the female activist from Saudi Arabia who led the Women to Drive movement. And she had a lot of trauma and pain as a child and as a grown-up when she 
only filmed herself driving and she got a fine for driving while female. And then she was thrown to jail. And, you know, Saudi jail is not a pleasant place. But she wrote about my book. She wrote, Behind the Extraordinary Woman Who Changes the World with Her Teaching Books and Research lies the story of overcoming radicalism, abuse, and heartbreak, turning trauma into triumph. And I thought that was just so beautifully said, because if we can turn trauma into triumph, then the trauma no longer controls us. And, and also break the silence, because everything in these, the only reason this all keeps going over the centuries is because everyone's afraid to open the curtain and not step into these spaces that have been family secrets or uh, things that we don't like to talk about because it's uncomfortable, we turn away from. But there's more and more people that are totally brave and courageous like yourself and and many other people. We're opening the curtain on these really difficult topics, but how do we stop and protect children? We have to open the curtain, otherwise it's just going to stay because in silence everything stays. You know what? That was one of the most important motivations for me to write a book was to say for decades, I did not speak of that. People come to me and say, wow, I had no idea, even family and close friends, because there was shame to it. I was ashamed to say that I grew up very religious. I was ashamed to say that I belonged to a cult. I was ashamed to say that I was sexually abused as many are. I was ashamed to say that I had to go an abortion when I just came to Australia, all these taboos. And I said, when I was writing the book, I said, there is no shame. I didn't do anything wrong in any of that. It's not my fault. It's not my shame. I should not be ashamed. And I'm just going to release the shame by saying, here is my story and I stand by it. And it may have happened to you. And I want you to know there is no shame there is no shame in losing a baby. It's very painful. But why do we have to add shame to that as well? And so many people walk around feeling such, you know, negative and adverse feelings of, of shame that are really destructive emotions. They're not helping in any way. And for me to tell the story was to say, I am taking out the shame. Uh, I'm taking the shame out of this and it's it's not shameful to have undergone all these traumas and difficult um, events. Thank you so much for doing that for so many people. You have no idea how many millions and millions of people are in this situation. And this word shame is a big one. I know that a lot of people use it, but but um, how how do you get people to do the stuff you want them to do in the power structures of whatever organizations we're talking about here, you use that tool, don't you? Because, and especially under the age of 18, when the brain's so malleable and plastic and and you're just looking for any adult to give you protection. So they use that as such a, that's such a powerful tool of making, it's called grooming and, and I've met other people doing this and that's how they keep it this way. They make people feel like it is their fault that they brought it on themselves, that it's, there's a whole set of tools that are used to make people feel this way, you know, and that's the hardest thing is breaking that and helping people go through that is so hard, isn't it? And society does that too. So, yes, they are the predators and they would make you feel bad about yourself and what happened. 
but society does it too. And by keeping silent about these things, we all contribute to the idea that it is shameful. If we don't speak about being sexually abused, I'm not saying that everyone should do it. It's, you know, it's up to the individuals and they're feeling uh, empowered enough to do that. Some, some are not ready. But when we're not speaking out loud about these things, when we're not saying, this is not my fault, this is the predator's fault, then we're all contributing to societal sense of shame around these issues. And it's generational. I mean, our generation is probably the sandwich generation, but the younger generation don't stand for the same kind of things. They speak out more, but everyone needs to do that. Your book is called Make It Meaningful. Uh, and it's a beautiful title. How did you come to this title and what does it mean for everybody listening in their own lives? The reason I wrote the book was not because I wanted to write a memoir. I didn't feel I was famous enough to write. I'm not Prince Harry. <laughs> so I didn't feel I was famous enough to write a memoir and that my story, okay, it's interesting to some people, uh, but the reason I wrote this was because I wanted to help people find meaning in their life. And I knew that if I was going to write that book, it had to be personal. I had to put myself in it. I couldn't just tell people how to do it. And the reason why I wrote a book about meaningfulness, which is also an interesting angle, because look, some researchers dedicate their entire life and career to studying meaningfulness in life and work. And that was not my path. I actually came because I studied volunteering or pro-social behavior of individuals and then corporate social responsibility or corporate social um, pro-social behavior of organizations. And I came from that door to find that volunteering and corporate social responsibility and purpose could really cultivate a sense of meaning in people's lives. I'll give you one example. 10 years ago, I've done a big study with over 30 um, or, um, Australian companies about corporate volunteering. And we asked over 5,000 employees, why do you volunteer through the workplace? Why don't you just do it on your own? And the number one answer that came up far above any other one was it makes work more meaningful to me. And for me, that was such a light bulb moment because it came back to me again and again and again when I asked people, why do you volunteer in a rape crisis center? Why do you volunteer in outreach vans helping street kids in the middle of the night, which was you know, my PhD? And so every study that I've done around this pro-social behavior impact and service always came back to the sense of meaningfulness. And so even though I did not dedicate my life and career to study meaningfulness, it just kept coming back to me. And also in my very personal story about finding meaning. And so I thought it's time for me to share my story and my research and my knowledge around how to create meaningfulness in life and work, how to cultivate a sense of purpose what are the enablers of that and what are the outcomes? And what I love about what you just shared there with your research around people volunteering to help other people, it doesn't require that you have to be part of a religious organization or some other big 
powerful organization telling you what to do. These are people making their own choices and they're doing simple things, but they're helping humanity live a better life. It's something that doesn't require someone to own a lot of money or tell you that you're a horrible person to make you go, go and do it. Absolutely. And you don't even have to belong to any organization. I mean, a lot of volunteering is what we call formal volunteering, which is done within an organization. But people help each other all the time. So if volunteering is helping others with no monetary uh, reward and doing it out of your free will, I mean, even if you help someone in the supermarket, it can also be seen as a you know small act of volunteering. And you you can do these small, what we call acts of kindness, anytime, any place for anyone. And we all know how good it makes you feel to help others. And it, if you do it in an organized way and you do it on a weekly basis, it really becomes part of your identity. So, you know, the interesting thing that you were saying in all of that is, you know, because we're a social animal, we need to feel like we belong. And uh, almost anyone you talk to will say to you that they feel good when they do something good for someone else. But it's not the modus operandi, is it, of our new society. So partly why we're falling apart a little bit is partly to do with that as well. So I think that's so interesting, isn't it, that meaningfulness actually comes from helping other people. So when I write about the seven enablers of meaningfulness, connectedness is the, the first one. And it was not a coincidence because we are so almost biologically hardwired to connect to others. And COVID-19 shook us to the core. It was a terrible thing that happened. Um, So many people died and were sick and lost their livelihood. But it also woke us up to see what happens when we get isolated. It was like, you know, a global scale of a experiment on, on human beings and what happens to us when we are not connected to others. And so many of us felt isolated and we just yearn to feel connected so much so that people find found creative ways, you know, to go out to their balconies and, and make noise with pots and pens to go out to the front yard, uh, yards and sing together. Um, and we were just so aching to have this human connectedness that I hope coming out of this will help us to cult- recultivate this sense of connectedness because for millennia we were connected when we were in tribes and later when we were farmers in villages and today we feel that we are connected because we have 5,000 followers or 5 million followers on social media but we're not really connected not in a meaningful way we don't have to see other people we don't have to help other people we're just you know, pretending you are pretend that we are connected. And that's why so many of us have this sense of emptiness. And we need to rejuvenate the idea of real connectedness to other humans and find ways to reach out and even connect physically. I mean, there are studies showing the benefits of hugging someone for over 20 seconds. 
And I remember when we came out of lockdown, I was really missing just giving people a hug. It was, it's such a great feeling when you are physically connected to other people, which you don't get on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok. You have to really be there and you have to, you know, I say in the book that don't walk a mile in other people's shoes. You know, that might just leave them shoeless. Instead, walk a mile with them and listen to their story and be be there with them, pre- be present while they share their story and listen with empathy. And we're not taught enough how to do that. Right. Children are not taught in school how to do active listening and empathy, at least not enough. Well, just they are intellectually, just exactly. not, not, not practically. I think, and I think that's so many, we could go on about that for, I could go on about that for a long time. You are a professor and a mother of two beautiful children. How have you managed to change the past to create your present life for them too, to break that intergenerational impact? Because I'm sure just knowing what I know as being a mother, when you're under a lot of stress and pressure, um, which you have been, you know, running a, big study, you know, getting promoted through the university, doing all the work you're doing. It's it's there's still a lot of pressure and being a mother. So I don't know if you've noticed, but I certainly did. Under that pressure sometimes my brain in terms of parenting would go straight back to everything that that yeah, that was the only parenting I knew was the parenting that um, I was given. So how did you work out ways to recognize that and change it? Not perfectly and with so much work. (laughs) So I do have two daughters. I'm very, very proud of them. I love them so much. But as you say, sometimes when it was a long day and I came back from work and I was tired and I was exhausted and they were not listening to me, I fell back to the parenting, almost fell back to the parenting patterns of my childhood. And I say almost because we were physically disciplined um, as some of my generation were um, to a point where some would see it as real physical abuse. It was not just a slap here and there. It was terrible things that were done to us. And, And I made a promise to myself to never, ever um, physically punish my children. And I kept that promise. But sometimes I was angry. I was tired. I was yelling at them more than I should. There was rage. And it was very, very tired, very, very difficult when they were little. As they're growing up, and as I was finding my own spiritual awakening, which took me years to find because for me, anything spiritual uh, meant religious and culty. But when I discovered that spiritual can also be not religious, that it's about how you connect to yourself, to others, to nature, and you find meaning in that, that really helped me to um, overcome the the rage, the old patterns, the destructive ways of dealing with negative emotions and to find constructive ways of doing it. And it was not easy, and it took many years of hard work. Um, and, of course, it's easier when the children don't wake you up in the middle yes, of the night exactly. anymore. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's under, that, it's under that thing because just for how the brain is formed, 
when you think about it, the mental models we have are the only things, and I learned this with Mark Williams, who was at Macquarie too. He's a cognitive neuroscientist there. He's out now teaching in schools. Uh, he talks about mental models. So the only way we remember something is what's in our memory banks. So tell me how many people have been given parenting manuals. All right. <laughs> so it's just, all just yeah. 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 And the thing is we have such high dreams and expectations of what kind of parents we're going to be. We're, we're never going to be like our parents first of all. Second, we're going to be these perfect parents who just stroll down the park and the, the birds will be tweeting. And, but when you haven't slept for a month <laughs> and you are exhausted and the baby doesn't want to, you know, stop crying. And you've you got a grant deadline. Becoming almost an animal like. So it's very, very difficult um, to keep up to these ideals. And I think we also need to talk about that because there is no shame in that. Exactly. Um, That's what I'm saying, that most people listening, the reason yeah. I, I'm raising it because it was me, but also because it's many people and it's there is absolutely no shame in it, but it's also great to recognize that we don't have any mental models of parenting, that we have to build them. And that's why it does take effort. Like, as you said, uh, you didn't do it, but that didn't happen naturally. You had to actually build a new parenting model in your brain. That That is just right. And I, I'm sure my daughters will be better parents. If they choose to be parents, they will be better parents than I was. And I know my mother was a much better mother than hers, but it's the intergenerational trauma and tragedy that just keeps feeding into this and, um, who knows? Maybe in two hundred years we'll have perfect parents, but we're not. I doubt just it. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so let's talk about. Um, so your book's all about you know finding meaning and purpose in your life, but let's let's just step back a little bit and think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where this idea of self actualization and purpose sits kind of underneath quite the top he's now got other things at the top or it got reinvented a little bit but mm. when you but in this day and age where it takes two parents to work because income like the people aren't getting paid as much as they were in the past income hasn't doesn't keep going up so there's more people needing to work and even kids are working right not just the parents um and right now with the all sorts of things happening around the world just being able to pay the rent or the mortgage or put food on the table and give your kids a better life. Some people may look at this and say, well, I just, I just can't even worry about that right now. So that's not what you're talking about, is it? You're talking about how you can interweave this no matter where you're starting from. Exactly. And look, Maslow's hierarchy of needs was important at the time, 1940s, after a terrible war in which so many people were dehumanized and it was important to talk about human needs as a universal idea because contradicting what the Nazis said was that the Jews, the gypsies, the African-Americans, the, you know, everyone shared similar human needs. And that was important at the time, but we know, and even Abraham Maslow was surprised that his pyramid of needs got accepted so easily without research. And we know now that it's not always that you have to meet the lower needs, such as um, uh, physiological needs or shelter, in order to strive for self-actualization. We have 
examples of people who write poetry in the middle of a war. We have examples of people sacrificing themselves in order to achieve higher higher goals, um, where love is sometimes overriding everything. So there are important aspects to this pyramid, but we don't always have to meet the lower needs to strive for self-actualization. But indeed, when we have to struggle to survive, it's much harder to talk about these ideals of um, finding meaning and service and impact. I, I completely understand that. The question is, how do we overcome the daily struggle and and manage to almost transcend that moment in order to feel that we are a higher level human being? And one of the stories that I share in the book, it's a very, very famous story written by Viktor Frankl, who is almost like the father of meaningfulness. Um, and he shared his experiences about being in, in the Holocaust and surviving Auschwitz. And he shares a story where he says, one day I walked in the camp and I was so hungry. I was so cold. My shoes were torn. I was in so much pain and I was angry. I was angry at the Nazis who reduced me to these physiological needs I became an animal that just wanted to eat and, and be warm. And then he said, I had, and I had a, an epiphany. I had a vision where I saw myself standing in front of a beautiful classroom and all the students were listening to me. And I, as I was sharing that experience and generating meaning into that, and for him to be able to be in the worst situation imaginable and to still be able to do future visioning. And it's amazing because it actually did come true. <laughs> but for him to be able to elevate himself out of this terrible situation shows that we as human beings are almost capable for everything, anything and that we can use our imagination in a way that helps us transcend that terrible situation we, we are in. And yes, I'm not downplaying it. A lot of people are undergoing um, difficulties right now and playing it rough. But there is a better future. And it's about how do we imagine that and make it happen beyond just the financial um, stability that we need. Yes, and I love that because I only bring up his hierarchy of needs because that's how people think, and I'm I'm really with you because I think that from all my work and all the interviews I've done with people around the world, people that are now 110 years old, everything that I see about that, what makes them happy and finding meaning is actually just in being able to look at the sky and really love it. Sometimes it's a little flower. Exactly, or just you really feel connected and happy. It's living in the moment of the present. Sometimes yeah. that's easy to say when you, you know, it's easy for us to talk about that. But, but in reality, that's what the brain is seeking. Like the brain is a amazing machine, and what yeah. you're talking about is feeding it 
material that allows it to move forward and not just to remain like you always talk about anchored to all the bad things. That's why it was so important for me to share my personal story. Because if I just wrote a book about finding meaning, people would say, okay, she's this happy, rich professor. Her life is easy. What does she know? But when I share stories about having a depression, um, the time in my life when I wanted to actually end my life, where I felt at the depth of despair and I still managed to come out of this. And I talk about resilience, not because I read about it in the book, but because I had to fight so hard for it. Then people could see that I, I understand what they're going through. And of course, I know some people will read the book and say, okay, this is not for me. I'm right now not in a position to find meaning. I can barely survive. But you still plant the seed that you get these ideas and one day I'm going to um, do that. And one of the enablers of meaningfulness is a sense of choice. And I think that is so important because when we walk the earth feeling we are victims, we had no choice in doing anything and it all happened to us, then we will not be able to find meaning. But when we start to even imagine a choice and later feel a real sense of choice and then we choose how we create our own path, then we can create a sense of meaningfulness. When I, I sorry, I just, yeah, yeah, I want to interrupt there one quickly because this happens to so many people. So you've described so many horrible things that happened to you, but you still discovered a sense of choice. Um, the question that people will be coming through, and just because I know so many people asking me these questions, how do you forgive? Is it forgiveness or is it forgetting or is it um, how do you step out of so many people end up in a blame situation where they no longer talk to anyone from their past or whatever. I'm interested in that sense of choice of how to, how do you get rid of the past to move forward so that you're not now in a conflict situation, if you know what I mean? Absolutely. And if I could just share a story yes. here, when I had an accident in 2016 and I was bed bound for six months, I was going through so much pain and it was so hard and I could blame people because it happened because someone um, did something, but let's not go into that. The The thing that f helped me was, it sounds a little bit silly, but it was imagined choice. And I imagined that I chose that accident to happen to me rather than to my children. And I know it's not real, but it helped me to survive that pain because I thought, what if someone said to me, do you choose for that to happen to you or to your child? And I would go absolutely do that to me. And so even though that I was not really given the choice, I imagined that and it helped me to go through this terrible time and come out of depression. But when it happens to you because someone did something to you and someone physically hurt you, someone emotionally abused you, someone sexually abused you, how do you forgive? And you never forget. We can't pretend that we forget. But you forgive and you forgive not because of them, but you forgive because of you. 
You forgive because you understand that they don't deserve necessarily your forgiveness, but you do. You deserve not to walk around with this heavy bag of anger, of feeling revengeful, of this pettiness, and that you just want to let it go. It's very hard. It's not easy. But you can start by saying the words, I forgive you. You know, when I finished recording the audiobook for this book, and it took five consecutive days, long days of recording, it was very difficult physically and emotionally. And I finished the book and I was so happy. And then we only had the acknowledgements. And I could see the producer is like ready to go home and two pages of acknowledgements. And I say to my parents, I love you and I forgive you. You did what you needed to do to survive. And I understand that now. Goodness, I was so (laughs) emotional. I was starting to cry. I couldn't continue reading the book. Forgiveness is such a strong emotion. It just feels like you are getting rid of something that was trapped inside you for so long. So even just saying these words out loud, let alone recording it in a studio, I love you and I forgive you, was so difficult and so liberating at the same time. It's That's such a powerful story, Debbie. Thank you for sharing that because I think I, f- I feel like this is a missing piece. Mm. There's so many people walking around um, carrying this and families all in kind of split up and fighting and because everyone's got a different story or different understanding of a situation and everything. So to help people be able to read your book and work out some of these strategies, this sense of choice, this forgiveness is such a religious term in so many ways, but you're not applying it in that way. I think there might be other words that people can think of too. It's really what you're talking about is becoming a thread and letting go of the anchor, aren't you? That that anchor of anger and yeah. shame and all sorts of things. And it's not easy. Let's not pretend it's easy. It's it's quite difficult. But the more you say it out loud, the easy the you know, it becomes a little bit easier every day. So yeah, practicing forgiving in a way that you do it not for religious reasons, not for because the other person deserves it. You do it because you deserve to not leave with this burden. Then it's very liberating. And so we talked about connectedness and sense of choice. Do you want, I don't want to give it all away because I think people <laughs> need to go and read your book, but let's just do one more of the enablers that you think is really powerful for the audience. I love the one that's optimism. And um, I know it's not it's not always easy in some circumstances. It's very difficult to stay positive. Uh, but optimism is such an important part of everything that we do. And when I when I wrote about this, I started thinking about all these volunteers I've studied so many years ago. If you are someone who get up in the middle of the night, and goes into an outreach van to help homeless children and street kids, you've got to have some level of optimism in you that you will make a difference. Without any level of optimism, we wouldn't have, for example, corporate social responsibility. 
we wouldn't have climate activism. We wouldn't have any activism. Any action that's worth taking requires some level of optimism, believing that the optimal outcome is some somehow possible to awaken this possibility of a better future for us and for others is such an important part of what we're doing today. It's not pessimism and it's not indifference. It really is about believing that we can have a better future. And we need that more than ever because the world today requires urgent action. We really need to save, I don't even say save the planet because the planet is going to survive. It's just going to become um, habitable for human beings. So we need to save ourselves and the biodiversity around us. And we require some level of optimism. So to deny that climate change is happening is very dangerous, but also to be so almost desperate and having the sense of despair that we are beyond change, that we're just all doomed, is also not a productive way of looking at it. So we require some level of optimism, positive thought, the ability to imagine our future is a better one in order to cultivate meaning in our life today. Yes, and that's so true. Nature always wins. So they'll it does <laughs> nature like I don't know if you saw the David Attenborough film about Chernobyl, where he starts out in Chernobyl and shows how the there's no humans there, but there's lots of plants growing over all the old buildings that that because they had to leave that town because of the nuclear accident. Yeah. Um, so. Let's finish off by thinking about, obviously, individuals can find this meaning. Um, It's not always up to the individual because we're a part of societies, governments, institutions, universities, and sometimes they've lost their meaning and purpose. And you talk a lot about this in your TED Talk, and and you and I are both part of universities and, and societies. And how do our leaders start to... Uh, think in more meaningful ways around their role in helping people that they're leading find meaning, not just to sustain an institution just for the sake of it, Mm. but to actually invoke all of these enablers for responsibility to help. If there's all these people in the organization that are all seeking meaning and can find it through corporate social responsibility and volunteering, our leaders have such an important role of being able to filter that down through large numbers of people. And we could really make a big difference to really change our society because they're such powerful institutions. Absolutely. And my previous books on corporate social responsibility and the purpose-driven university looked at the organizational level and what you can do to create a purpose-driven one. And it's, um, For centuries, companies believed that they're only there to maximize shareholder value. There is a very famous article, everyone refers to that from the 1970s by Milton Friedman that says the only social responsibility of a company is to maximize profit. And that was the the belief for, for two centuries that this is the only reason why we have corporations that we just need to focus on maximizing profit. 
And there are still a lot of organizations, a lot of companies that live by this motto. But there is an increasing number of companies and business leaders that are now come to understand that it's not just about maximizing profit, but maximizing purpose. And how do we do that in a genuine way? Because the worst thing you can, you can do is purpose wash. And I've seen companies that are really driven by profit now start to talk about purpose, but it's a, it's a meaningless um, way of doing that. So to cultivate a purpose in the organization, you need to think about what you do beyond your everyday making products, creating jobs, making profits, and giving money to charity. That None of this is purpose-driven. Purpose-driven is when you can understand how you can utilize the company, what it stands for, all its resources to create a positive impact in the world. So for example, Ben and Jerry's, they say, we're a company with a social mission. We just happen to make ice cream. Our products are secondary to how we utilize the power and voice of the company to cultivate change. Patagonia was not established to sell outdoor apparel. It was established because Yvonne Chinard wanted to show that we can actually create a business that's so sustainable it can actually save the planet. So when you do it holistically and you really walk the talk and you have a strong purpose, which you live by, then it creates such an immense sense of meaningfulness to all your employees, customers, um, and stakeholders. You can always tell when that when that disappears too. Yes. But you can also tell when it happens, when you walk into an organization and people's eyes are shining, you know that you're walking into a purpose-driven organization. Uh, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, as usual. you had, Your yeah. life has got so much meaning and helping so many people. It must be wonderful for you to see how life has transformed enormously. It was work all, worth all the effort that you've put in to achieve that. And, you know, the thing, Debbie, that you and I know, and especially I come in it from a neuroscience perspective, the brain will take you wherever you lead it. And that's what you're talking about. So these choices, this sense is not something that's nebulous. It's something like just by getting up in the morning and, and making a choice to not look at your phone straight away, but look out the window and take in a panoramic view is a choice of bringing your brain chemicals that allow it to thrive it, it's something that you're choosing which way you're putting your eyes and its attention towards absolutely and, and everyone can do that and that's what you talk about victor frankel in the holocaust you talk i there's many examples of people in prison there are people in all sorts of different situations that have found opportunities to do this so if they can do it that's how i see it too then we just need to help people work out ways they can do it too. And it, it has generational impact, doesn't it? It's not just for your own life. It's for your children's life. It's for anyone that comes in contact with you. It changes their direction too. You create a ripple effect of positive impact around you and you never know the extent of your ripple effect, positive impact, but you can only do what you do. And if you try to be a better person for yourself and for others, it will work. 
I right now feel like I'm one of these people who wrote a book about how to become rich and that made them a lot of money. For me, I wrote a book about how to find meaning and I feel so rich in my level of meaningfulness in life. Thank you so much and look forward to the next book, which I hear is on the way, which I am so surprised. I thought you'd need a break, but congratulations, Debbie, on wonderful work. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here.